This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, a professor of economics at the University of San Francisco. My guest today is Isabella Weber, a professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, who works on China, global trade, and the history of economic thought. Today, we'll be talking about her book, How China Escaped Shock Therapy, The Market Reform Debate. Just published last year as part of the Routledge Studies on the Chinese Economy, her book has already won the 2021 Joan Robinson Prize and the International Studies Association Best Interdisciplinary Book Award, and was recommended as one of the best books of 2021 by Martin Wolf in the Financial Times, Adam Tooze in Foreign Policy, uh, and others. Her book looks at the intellectual debates around market reform in China from the Chinese perspective. And she focuses in particular on the key turning point of the early post-Mao reform period of the 1980s. She looks at what discussions were they having, what ideas were on the table, and why did some win out and not others? In particular, as the title suggests, why did China not pursue a shock therapy approach like much of Eastern Europe did a few years later? Isabella, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad we got this chance to talk about your book. Thanks so much for having me, Peter. This is exciting. Yeah, it's a really interesting book, and uh, I'm really looking forward to, to learning um, from you more more about it and sharing it with people. So, so why don't we start with um, just what is shock therapy? And and think, since I think it's it's evident from the title when you talk about escaping shock therapy, it's very clear that you're not a fan of it. So maybe first we could do sort of the cognitive empathy thing, where you try to explain the logic of shock therapy in the way that its proponents would. Like why did why do you know many people think it's a good idea? Why is it supposed to be? Uh, what is it? And, and what's what's the logic of the approach? Yeah, sure. Um, so at its core, shock therapy is a policy package that is, broadly speaking, um, composed of four elements. The first one is price liberalization. The second one is macroeconomic austerity. 
the third one, trade liberalization, and the fourth one, privatization, where basically the idea is that you liberalize all prices or as many prices as you possibly can, um, and then impose macroeconomic restraint, which would be stabilizing um, the aggregate macroeconomic relationships and therefore um, prevent prices, even though they were liberalized, from spiraling out of control. Um, and then you liberalize uh, trade in order to integrate your economy into the global market. And finally, privatization is meant to transform state-owned um, enterprises and collective enterprises into private firms that would then be reacting to this set of price signals that has been created through price liberalization and that is meant to be um, stable or rational um, thanks to um, the macroeconomic um, uh, measures that, 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 that are um, uh, part of, of, of the package. So in that sense, broadly speaking, the idea is that a market economy can be created by um, making way for market incentives that express themselves in terms of prices and then create market actors through privatization. Okay. And so, I mean, that sounds like, you know, that's, it's moving towards the end point of something, you know, roughly like, uh, you know, modern Europe or Japan or America. I mean, all of obviously each of these economies have a different sort of flavor, flavor of market, uh, economy, but um, it does, you know, with 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 its despite its many crises, it sort of you know it sort of works as a package. So so why is that not uh, a good approach for uh, a post communist uh, regime to take, or a regime that's yeah just just coming out of a, a hardcore planning approach? Yeah. Um, so. There are basically several points that create trouble with this approach. In theory, it sounds very nice. And in theory, it sounds scientific. And in theory, it sounds compelling and like a relatively easy solution to move from one economic system that is a plant economy to a market economy, right? Um, which on the surface appears promising. The trouble is that coming out of planned economies, prices tended to not reflect costs. In fact, they were often set in ways that were quite consciously not aligned with any kind of notions of cost. But instead, at least that was the case in the Chinese um, context, the price system functioned as a redistribution mechanism between different sectors. So, for example, and crucially, the prices of the most upstream goods, things like energy, steel, um, and so on, were set relatively low, whereas the prices for quote-unquote luxury consumer goods, things like wristwatches, bicycles, and radios in the Chinese context of the 1980s, um, were set relatively high, where these high non-essential consumer good prices would be extracting liquidity from households, whereas these low upstream prices would be incentivizing um, the building up of intermediate industries. Now, if you liberalize the prices of these upstream industries, they will more or less by design be shooting up since they were before consciously set below cost, right? So mm -hmm. um, the expectation must be that these prices are going to go up. And in fact, it's considered as not 
a bad thing from the perspective of the logic of shock therapy because it would kind of create the correct, quote-unquote, correct price signals, which would then signal a scarcity in these upstream um, sectors and therefore adjust the um, resource allocation. The trouble is that if these prices are being liberalized in a context where all of the firms are still more or less facing a soft budget constraint, which is the case in the transition from a plan to a market economy, these firms will not react to these increased prices by necessarily adjusting their production techniques, um, but rather they will react by handing down the price increases to the next firm or to their customers. Now, if all of this is happening in a setting where the workers are also still part of more or less socialist production units, then eventually they will be asking for higher wages, which will create a price-wage spiral. But even if you don't have a price-wage spiral, you have very strong cost-push inflation dynamics that originate from the shooting up of these most upstream prices, um, which can then risk hyperinflation, where very strong inflationary tendencies or even hyperinflation can create such an economic turmoil that the whole transition then actually becomes much more um, chaotic and less managed and less successful ultimately than um, if if, uh, a, a degree of price stability is maintained. So this is one of the key arguments from the perspective of price stability, why um, the overnight liberalization of prices, given this specific starting point that I have sketched, can turn out to be, um, economically speaking, very um, tumultuous. Which, in fact, I mean, the idea of upstream prices shooting up should be something that sounds familiar to us um, in the current context where um, in, in Europe, anyways, um, the, the explosion of um, natural gas prices is presenting an enormous challenge. And in some sense, um, a, a similar type of um, very rapid increase of the most upstream um, prices would be uh, part of the design of a shock therapy pro- program. Right. I guess that's the, yeah, that's so, as, as you point out, you know, regardless of whether you're a planned or market economy or any economy, having a, a huge, huge shock to prices is going to, um, you know, I mean, in principle, it's sending a signal, um, you know, so people that's maybe good because people adjust to it and use, use less of that resource. Um, but, but certainly, uh, that's going to cause that's going to cause huge disruptions to you know existing ways of doing things and take time for people to to sort out um, you know what kind of the new you know the new equilibrium is not just going to sort of magically appear um, and and so that that transition time be be very uh, catastrophic I guess. Yeah, which then has been sometimes described in the literature as creating a situation where you have neither plan nor market because you kind of give up on the planning mechanisms as a form of resource allocation. And at the same time, because you have this very erratic price movements or even very strong inflation or even hyperinflationary tendencies, under these conditions, market allocation mechanisms also do not work well, right? Market allocation Mm -hmm. requires a degree of price stability. So then you can be left with kind of neither market nor plan, um, which is in some sense a worse situation um, than the pre-reform um, uh, uh, moment, which is not to say that one should not reform, but it can like 
traders' sentiment of reform has actually brought a worse outcome than 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 the old um, old system. Right, and if things go go badly enough, you know, uh, whatever the, to misquote the old Keynes, right? In the in the in the if in the long run it'll all work out, but in the in the long run we're all dead. So in the short run, maybe we'll all vote in, you know, some some worse system or a new dictator or you know regress back to the purely planned economy. I guess if things are going badly enough uh, with with the initial reform. Yeah, that's precisely right. Um, in fact, shock therapy even in the rhetoric of the proponents, was always based on the idea that one has to make short-run sacrifices in order to achieve long-run goals. And there are all sorts of metaphors that were used, like things... Sorry, things like um, it's better to cut off the cat's tail in one um, cut of the knife rather than in several pieces. So in that sense, yes, there, there is a necessity of very sharp, intense pain, but it's better to get over with it quickly in order to lay the foundation for some sort of future um, prosperity or um, proponents of shock therapy used to talk about the so-called valley of tears, which you kind of have to pass through. And then once you pass through the valley of tears, somehow there will be, um, as, as the former German chancellor was saying, blooming landscapes um, uh, that, 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 that would, would, would be awaiting um, uh, across the, the valley of tears. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's so that's one approach, and you know, with with a lot of nuances, that's that's kind of what most of Eastern Europe did uh, in the in the 1990s. But but China did something different. So so what what's the um, what's the alternative to that? You're, you know, you're not advocating for stagnation or sticking with the planned economy. But if we're if you're not going to do shock therapy, how do you uh, how do you make that work? Yeah, um, I mean, just to be sure, my book is not advocating <laughs> for how China should be reforming, but it's trying to understand how Chinese economists and officials and so on in the 1980s were thinking about reform and debating reform and considering different kinds of um, reform approaches. And the broad package that later on came to be known around the world as shock therapy um, was um, considered in regard to the Big Bang and price liberalization, um, which is part of the same kind of logic of how to go about um, market creation, starting from some sort of a socialist planned economy. And of course, there are nuances between the Maoist economy and the Soviet economy and the Polish economy and so on. Um, so that just as an aside. Um, yeah, actually, to- maybe we should we should pause here just to um, make clear to listeners um, what what you're doing with the book, right? Because other people have sort of written about this period and, and argued about what, you know, what worked about it or what didn't work or what should have been done or shouldn't have been done. Um, so, so tell us, tell us why you felt the need to uh, write a new book, and like, what's the the distinctive approach that you've you've taken? Yeah. Um, so there is basically this puzzle of China having increased its economic output as quickly as it did. Um, so from that perspective of GDP growth, and I'm not saying this as a moral judgment or political judgment, but from the pure economic lens of GDP growth, China has been incredibly su- successful. It has been in particular incredibly successful if we compare China's um, growth record with um, 
with other transition economies. Not necessarily all of them, but at least the average or um, the, the most obvious point of comparison, which is Russia, China, mm-hmm. has had an enormous success in terms of GDP growth. Um, so if this is the case, then this begs the question, what is the economics of China's reforms, right? Like, what is the kind of economic thinking, the kind of economic research that underpins this quote-unquote growth miracle, which has often been described as being unprecedented in terms of scale and pace and so on. And there had been relatively little research um, on the question of how economists and um, reformers in China in this critical first decade went about redesigning their economic system. I'm not saying there had been no research. There have been, of course, important um, contributions, in particular, of course, Julian Gewurz's um, path-breaking book, um, Unlikely Partners. Um, So what I'm doing in this book is I have interviewed a whole range of um, people who were involved in these debates in the 1980s, and I'm trying to um, drill into what are the arguments from an economics perspective um, that these actors have presented and what was at stake in the debate over how to create markets starting from a command or planned economy or however you want to precisely call the, the, the Maoist uh, economy that was inherited by the reformers. So in that sense, it's really a, a, a close reading and a, a piece of history of economics that tries to understand how China's economists have struggled with this path-breaking question, which then set China on the specific path of reform that it has pursued. Right. So, so not, not so much, or at least not exclusively, like what did they do and, and how did it work out or even, you know, our own as outsiders or in retrospect opinions about, you know, why it worked out as it did, but, but really trying to understand the, the perspective of the people at the time and, and how, how the debates played out among them. Exactly. So I think we can think of the 1980s as really a crossroads in China's history. And since the path of China has changed so much and China became so important for the world economy, it's also a crossroads for the world economy. So I'm trying to understand how did people at the time try to go about um, reforming um, the, the, the Chinese economy and creating a new kind of economic system? Okay. So, yeah. So why don't you walk us through, like, what were the, what were the big debates and, and points of view, you know, shock therapy, I think, I assume that was a term, you know, invented in English sometime later. So like, how did, what did they think the, the options were? And, uh, and how did they see the sort of uh, trade-offs um, of them? And then, you know, what kind of evidence or experiences did they, did they draw from to, uh, you know, assess which they should pursue? Yeah. Um, so very broadly speaking, the idea of um, pursuing one big package of reforms was competing with an approach that was more grounded in what I'm calling experimentalist gradualism. Now, this is not simply, simply a shock therapy versus gradualism kind of argument, because at the core, the idea of a package reform is not necessarily 
that it needs to be in one big step. It can also be in several smaller steps um, where you are basically defining a target model, which is where you want to move, um, which in this case is the market economy. And then you kind of work backwards and you say, okay, if this is my goal, then I have to take these one, two, three, five steps. Okay, So this is one logic of reform that um, is... At a, at a very abstract level, underpinning also the logic of shock therapy. The alternative logic of thinking about reform is to have a broad vision of a new kind of economic system in which um, the market would play a much more fundamental role. But instead of defining the steps that you are taking backwards, from the ta- starting from the target model, which has been defined in some based on some mathematical or theoretical approach. But instead, you start from the here and now, and you ask yourself, what steps can be taken from where we are in order to unleash market forces, which should be unleashed in a way in order to increase um, economic productivity and to increase um, economic development, really. So this, then, is what I'm calling in the book kind of making the path while walking, um, to put this abstractly. So the the new reform approach is basically emerging from these um, local experiments, which then often has led people to think, okay, economics, economic theory, economic research didn't play a role. But I'm arguing that, in fact, economists and economic researchers did play an important role in going around and trying to understand um, how these experiments are playing out and what one can learn from these experiments and then systematizing them into national policy. Now, the core question that I'm focusing on um, beyond this kind of abstract opposition of two very broad alternative ways of um, thinking about reform um, is the question of price um, reform. The reason why I'm focusing on the question of price reform is because there's basically a general acknowledgement that if you want to have markets um, as a tool of economic governance, then you need some degree of price freedom, right? You cannot stick with planned prices if you want to have markets. But then the question is, how do you introduce price movements into this inherited command economy? And as I've already explained, the package reformers or shock shock therapy logic would primarily rely on simply liberalizing prices. In some instances, there was um, an idea of first actually adjusting all plant prices based on some sort of an equilibrium model, then assuming that you are in equilibrium, um, uh, thinking that you could liberalize safely and then kind of stay in that equilibrium, which was supposed to be sustained by the market. The alternative approach is what has come to be known the dual track price system, which has um, in many ways emerged um, from the agricultural reforms, where the idea is that you maintain the um, institutions and mechanisms of the plan and quota price system in the first instance, um, and then basically um, production beyond the plan, beyond the assigned quotas, would be happening at market prices for the market. Um, 
this system in the countryside under the name of the household responsibility system, which of course also involved a, a change in the responsibility of production, um, emerged more or less spontaneously through bottom-up initiatives, but was then being surveyed by groups of um, really young reform intellectuals, in particular the agricultural reform group, that went around and tried to understand how these experiments were playing out and helped to translate this into national policy. So this is an important um, example for the kind of logic that I'm, I'm proposing. Later on, the dual track price system was then also transferred from the agricultural sphere into the urban industrial sphere, where um, in the urban economy, um, the key question was not really what to do with downstream inessential small producers, but the key question was how to go about reforming the price system of the core, the most upstream, the backbone of the industrial economy. So when you talk about these different organizations, um, you know, in, in the United States, you could, people can form a think tank or, you know, just form a club, like maybe, you know, some junior professor somewhere might form an organization and start discussing some ideas and, and give it a name. But, but I'm curious, you know, in, in, in China, especially in that period, things were much more institutionalized. So like, when you say this, this like, nonfazu, like, who, who were they? What were they, like, who was, I guess, who was they paying their rent and their salaries? And then, and then how did the, the, the organization work? Yeah, so initially, this was really predominantly university students who were literally meeting in parks and empty university auditoriums some on weekends and so on. So they were initially really very self-organized, of course, with some um, key leaders um, such as Chen Yitzhi. Um, however, they then pretty quickly gained the backing from several key um older generation uh, political leaders such as Deng Lichun and uh, Du Rongsheng, um, who supported them and basically provided funding um, to, to their activities and helped them to kind of have some sort of an attachment to the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, which was incredibly um, uh, new at the time to have such a situation where basically a, a, a student-run or like kind of volunteer-run organization um, would get the backing from such senior leadership and then actually um, become an important source of um, research in the process of, um, of, of, of the agricultural reforms, which at the time were, of course, the most important kind of reforms um, that were being undertaken. As some of my interviews were pointing out, some of them were not even party members at the time when they were... Um, interacting and discussing key um, economic reform questions with some very senior kind of officials um, or even government um, leaders, which um, today is pretty much unthinkable. And I think this is actually, in in that sense, also interesting beyond these questions of uh, what kind of economic ideas were being discussed and so on, um, since it kind of illustrates the enormous openness um, of debate that was um, uh, uh, available in, in the 1980s, as there was this genuine openness of where things were going to go, and also as kind of the bureaucratic hierarchies were just being re-established, recreated, coming out um, of the late Maoist um, uh, period. And so the, the research that they did... Um, 
you know, so, so for, if there are actual like, uh, trained economists listening to this podcast, you know, we think of research as, you know, either, either, you know, sit in a room and write a theoretical model or, you know, go out there and, um, you know, gather, gather data on something. And then, you know, lots of econometrics around that to, to sort of do it precisely. Like what were they, were they sort of, were they using mathematical models or were they just sort of like having, you know, having more like what we'd think of as more of a policy discussion or were they, you know, what kind of evidence were they gathering to, to support their different points of view? Yeah, that's a great question. So those people who ended up um, supporting the package reform approach tended to be generally speaking, and of course I'm here generalizing, um, tended to be, um, more oriented towards more formal modeling, but they were really just starting to pick this up. I mean, people like Wu Jingyan, um, who was by the time already clearly a middle-aged um, economist, um, was basically sitting in on undergraduate classes when he was um, a, a visiting scholar in at Yale in, in the early 80s. So in that sense, you have there like kind of one of the figureheads of the package reform group um, who is literally studying Econ 101 while trying to come up um, with new new kind of theoretically motivated models um, for economic reform. And this happened, especially in the early years, very much in close dialogue with um, Eastern European emigre economists who were brought to China, um, not least by the World Bank, um, since the World Bank recognized that they were um, top-notch um, neoclassical economists, but also knew the language of um, socialism. So out of this tapestry came these kind of blueprint package reform type of ideas. The other side in the debate relied um, much more on a form of survey research where they would literally go around with questionnaires and interview people on the ground, um, uh, survey uh, output based on visiting um, uh, uh, state-owned enterprises, visiting villages, and so on. So it was much more um, kind of a fieldwork-based inductive type of research. But that being said, also amongst these groups, there was a very um, uh, vibrant fascination with um, new mathematical ideas, with um, dynamic systems, and so on, that was like just arriving in China at the time. But things, I mean, we have to remember, things happened we're moving pretty quickly. And in some sense, we can maybe sympathize with this um, in the year 2022 more than we might have um, uh, 10 years ago, um, as we are looking at how things are unfolding in Europe and how um, some questions that pertain to very quick uh, economic restructuring have to be happening pretty quickly, right? And where, where one is dealing with um, a, a very imprecise information while taking pretty big decisions. Um, of course, there was no war in China. So in that sense, um, the situation was quite drastically different. Nevertheless, um, you had a lot of processes of pretty complex changes happening at the same time. So that rather than being in command of like kind of the perfect data set with which you could come up with a perfect identification strategy and come up with the causal analysis of what what has been happening and what should be done. Um, a lot was really, as the Chinese like to say, feeling um, four stones across the river, also methodologically kind of trying to gather whatever evidence one could gather. And this also did not was not limited um, to China per se, but this also involved um, uh, study tours to other countries, such as importantly um, in, in, in the story that I'm telling in the book around um, the, 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 the almost implementation 
implementation of a pretty radical price reform in 1986, a delegation that toured Hungary and Yugoslavia, where they literally spent weeks interviewing people um, from like kind of the lower rank um, factory officials um, all the way up to the finance minister and trying to understand by talking by the people who um, did economic reforms um, in these countries, how they saw it, how they saw the pitfalls and successes of, of, of what they have been trying to do. So in that sense, it's a pretty inductive and kind of mixed methods, pretty um, uh, pluralist uh, kind of approach to doing economic research that is probably not necessarily the foremost method um, in economics nowadays. I think it, yeah, I think it, well, it goes back and forth. And certainly when you get to the actual point of like making policy, it, it always does tend to draw from, you know, a mix of the the academic, uh, you know, ivory tower ideas and the the precisely estimated, uh, you know, uh, empirical efforts plus kind of a, it seems like a gut check or, or, you know, political sensitivity to, you know, what they, what they think will happen, which I think is, you often hear about academic economists being frustrated with, uh, with policymakers, but, you know, I think the, at least the argument in favor of that is they're, they're trying to draw from some of this qualitative evidence, which, yeah, is never as, never, never as rigorous, but maybe may nonetheless be important. Um, so, so yeah, in the case of, sorry, sorry, sorry not to cut you off, but just to add one more point. I mean, we also have to remember that um, coming out of the period of the Cultural Revolution um, and just re-establishing the institutions of economic research also meant that the availability of precise data and so on was fairly limited. I mean, compared to the statistical apparatus that, let's say, the United States has at its command um, today, I think the the, the precise um, economic data that you could just like download and run analysis in China's 1980s was, of course, a completely different universe, right? Right. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And so, um, so when, they, when they talked to you, you mentioned that, you know, they visited Eastern Europe and, and Hungary. Like, what, um, what kind of lessons did they get, draw from, from those those study tours did that tend to lead them more towards the the big bang package approach or or did that uh lead them to a more gradualist um, kind of thinking yeah so there was a big controversy in some sense around how to interpret the eastern european experience and the eastern european emigre economists um that visited china people like otashik um bruce um Kornai, and so on tended to argue that um, and of course, I'm vastly simplifying like various different people who have written a lot, but just as a tendency, they tended to argue that um, gradualism would eventually get stuck in some sort of a halfway house, which they thought had happened in Eastern Europe, where you, by the 1980s, had um, quite substantial attempts at economic um, reforms that were considered as failures um, by these um, 
emigre economists or kind of economists that were going back and forth between the West and um, um, uh, the socialist world like Kornai. So therefore, they were kind of warning against um, not getting stuck in this halfway house, needing um, a, a holistic approach, needing an approach that would consider the economy as an organic whole and then come up with a blueprint for a future kind of model. Um, in contrast, those who then, and, and I'm really mainly referring here to researchers from the Economic System Reform Institute, but there was also an, a whole range of other people involved, people such as Gautam Juen and so on. Um, those who went to Hungary and Yugoslavia in 1986 and did all these interviews, not with economists who were trying to interpret the experience as a whole from this like big theoretical kind of perspective, but people who were operationally on the ground, the message that they sent back was basically that the attempts at price reform that had been undertaken um, in Hungary and Yugoslavia um, actually showed that whenever prices were liberalized, there tended to be these inflationary um, Uh, experiences without an adjustment of um, the economic structure in the ways in which it was um, desired to, to, to create. So therefore, the perspective from the on-the-ground um, <laughs> surveys actually kind of uh, uh, challenged this idea that one could rely primarily on, on, on pretty far-ranging price reforms as the mechanism for reform. Interestingly, Janosch Kornai himself, who was then also, I mean, who visited China um, in 85, but then was also interviewed in 86 by this Chinese delegation, himself um, ended up uh, being providing one of the key arguments against um, the prospects for success of overnight price liberalization, which was the argument that I have already invoked earlier, um, and namely the, the idea that as long as there are soft budget constraints, um, there was a very real risk of, um, of cost push inflation. Right. That does seem like to be a, a key point of this. Like if there really is a, you know, a fixed money supply and, and I don't know, maybe, maybe it's sort of just rescuing the hypothesis. So if you say, you know, if austerity were real, then the price, the price cost push price problem wouldn't be there. But I guess the, certainly the, the practical, Uh, political or institutional challenge um, in China was that they weren't in a position to, they couldn't, they weren't really doing the, you know, no one was ever going to do the whole big bang together, right? They were going to um, have, um, you know, they, they couldn't just like, there's some, there's so many businesses they had to keep going, right. And people who had to stay employed for, for the sake of political stability um, and with, without with all that then that meant that the money supply was kind of going to tend to expand yeah and i mean there was also a lot of endogenous money creation happening where if um firms had been i mean what used to be socialist production units had been basically in these productive relationships for decades and they always delivered their output to this other firm and then this firm couldn't pay, then they would just give them credit and still keep producing that stuff and delivering it, right? So then you kind of had an endogenous money creation, which often was pretty informal of like, um, or, or which could take pretty informal forms of one firm guaranteeing another firm credit um, and, and thereby like kind of keeping production running um, and, and accommodate, accommodating these um, increasing prices rather than adjusting um, the, the, the production methods. Um, 
What is important, I think, is to see that the dual track price system was not just a price system, but was also a mechanism to um, reform enterprises. In fact, many people have kind of called what I'm calling experimentalist um, gradualism versus package reform, um, price reform versus enterprise reform, where the dual track system is seen as um, emphasizing enterprise reform over price reform, the reason being that if um, companies produce, um, I mean, if production units produce um, for the plan and for the market at the same time, then they actually start to um, change the logic of operation and start to move from simply implementing command and orders from the plan to um, trying to cater to the market, um, create products that speak to the market, create um, channels of commerce um, that actually allow them to cater their output to the market and so on. So that um, even without a full liberalization under the dual track system, the whole idea of growing into the market also meant the creation of um, market-oriented firms, which then um, later on kind of um, uh, meant that the, the that the players that would react to price signals had kind of um, acquired the habits and, and institutions and knowledge and so on that they needed to actually um, do just that. Right. So it's not just a matter of setting the prices and... Uh, you know, assuming that, yeah, sort of like, I don't know, what's the metaphor? Something like, you know, if you, if you spread, if you spread fertilizer and water on the ground, but there's no seeds there that, that are able to take advantage of it, then it's not, then nothing's going to grow, even though in principle, you know, all the ingredients are there, but that, that the sort of literally in well, my metaphor, I guess, literally the DNA of like something that can then put all the pieces together and grow a plant out of it, or, you know, institutionally an organization that knows how to interpret price signals, you know, respond to those, um, and, uh, and then start, you know, generating profits and, and producing, um, in accordance is something that, uh, you can't just take for granted. Exactly. So from that perspective, this is exactly this idea of making the path by walking, right? However, the problem was, of course, that if you had two prices and the price on the market was high and the price um, for the plan part was low, that this did create incentives for corruption and bribery, which did create a pretty big challenge um, to this whole um, dual track system towards the mid and late 1980s, which um, made for a lot of social ten tension and which also um, provided the ground for um, a very valid and important critique on the part of the package reformers saying that this dual track system would create inherent rent-seeking opportunities and therefore um, was basically a, a, a very suboptimal kind of um, uh, arrangement. So did, when they when they made that critique and you know noted the corruption, um, then did that did that lead to a big shift in policy? So in eighty six and eighty eight, there were these two major moments where radical price reform was kind of um, attempted. Right in eighty six, Charles Young took the initiative and created the so called. Um, a, a, a program office, um, which came up with big plans for price reform. And then in 88, as I'm arguing in the book, and there's some um, uh, uh, debate in the literature, um, Deng Xiaoping took the lead um, in, in initiating another attempt at radical um, price reform. In 86, this de delegation from Hungary and Yugoslavia that we have already talked about um, kind of was one of what well, was one of the factors that led to the reversal of this idea of this big package um, uh, price liberalization. In 88, um, by contrast, you were 
at a moment where basically um, China had already been going through 10 years of reforms. And yes, there was a breakthrough in um, agricultural reforms. And yes, there was um, pretty astounding economic growth. Nevertheless, it also became clear that not everybody stood to win from reform. And that, um, in fact, from a distribution perspective, you also had all sorts of pretty um, uh, uh, perverted kind of outcomes from the perspective of the people involved, where suddenly, let's say, the guy selling eggs in the street um, was earning a higher salary than than, than the high school teacher or something like that, right? So as a result of these um, popping up of market activities um, at the margins of the system, but becoming increasingly important, you get these uh, very um, uh, kind of... um, erratic distributional um, dynamics, which together with already um, uh, 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 an inkling of of, um, price pressures that came from the liberalization of a whole range of consumer goods, um, then created this pretty um, uh, 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 explosive kind of um, um, economic, social, and political atmosphere. So in that context, then, Deng Xiaoping kind of tries to solve um, the, the, the problem of price reform to kind of cut the Gordon knot, um, trying to pursue this idea of one big package, one big price reform that would um, finally resolve this issue. And as he's literally saying, um, uh, China would have to go through short-term pain to lay the foundations um, for growth and prosperity um, to be achieved by 2050. Okay, so there's this like very very much this logic that we have talked about before um, of, of emphasizing that short-term pain is necessary for this like kind of long-run gain. In reaction to only these announcements, then you get basically panic um, buying and, and bank runs and so on that become so severe um, that that um, the Chinese leadership reverses um, this, this um, policy. But so all of this goes to say that, yes, corruption was a serious problem. Price pressures were a serious problem. And basically, as China was grappling with the challenges that emerged from the dual track system, this idea of a clean, scientifically um, uh, justified um, wholesale solution to the challenge of reform um, uh, became more and more attractive. But then it became more attractive, but then resulted in its own disruptions. And then so so how, how would you link uh, you sort of close your book basically in in 1989, um, which you knows obviously dramatic uh, and tragic political events. But then like, was that how, how do you see the lead up between these different economic policies and their connection to um, to the protests uh, and their suppression um, at, at the end of the period? Yeah, I think there's a pretty direct um, connection. So in late 88, then, of course, economic reforms are kind of put on ice, um, but inflation is still um, pretty high. And um, you kind of get these pretty harsh um, austerity measures that are being imposed together with a whole range of um, less standard um, stabilization policies from the perspective of um, the kind of macroeconomics that we will be studying today. Um, So... This then created a, a situation where you had this, like, these economic pressures and this political turnaround, which combined um, was incredibly explosive. Um, and uh, as such, I think that this economic background is important for what is happening in 89. And many of the people who I am chronicling in the book, in fact, in 89, um, kind of ended up um, 
expressing their um, uh, 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 their 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 support for the call for dialogue between the protesters and the leadership um, quite publicly. So so that um, after after the whole crackdown, um, they actually many of them had to um, flee the country or um, kind of uh, uh, some of them were even imprisoned. Some of them kind of disappeared into private business. So a lot so that in, in many ways, my book is also a story of um, if you want, so the for, forgotten, um, <laughs> forgotten uh, architects of, of economic reforms in China in 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 the 1980s, the kind of unsung heroes, because they they um, they they then kind of disappeared more or less from the scene in 89. Not all of them, but but many of the key players. Oh, I was wondering. So they didn't. So it's not like this is the the young times of the people who later became the. Um, the leaders of the economy um, in the nineties and two thousands. This is really, uh, yeah, like you said. So a lot of them just sort of left after that point, or left left the active uh, public scene. Yeah, I mean, a small fraction did continue. Some of them also did become university professors. Um, but some of the major figures that I am portraying in the book um, then literally more or less disappear from the scene. Um, some some of them in the interviews, some of the people were saying we were actually thinking like this, where the kind of people that would become um, China's top leadership um, one day, but after, after um, 89, this prospect was gone. The irony is that um, even though these people, these specific, I mean, the whole whole range of these specific people um, no longer um, had the kind of influence and importance that they had in the 80s. Nonetheless, the dual track system kind of by that time had taken on a life of its own. And of course, after the um, Southern Tour, there was um, a major um, reform breakthrough that also involved um, a, a, a round of relatively um, intense price liberalization. But you never had this a kind of wholesale um, uh, Big Bang, even in the late 90s, the kind of most neoliberal period in China's reforms, and uh, where you had, of course, um, uh, if you want so shock therapy from the perspective of the late of workers, right? I mean, I'm not saying this was not um, this was not socially harsh or anything like that, but you did not have shock therapy in the specific economic sense in which um, I have described it. And even the main slogan dis- that describes the major um, privatization initiatives that then happened in the late 90s is, of course, um, grasping the big and letting go of the small, which is this whole idea of maintaining control of the, over the most essential, most strategic parts of the economy and leaving the small, the not so essential, the more peripheral aspects of the economy um, uh, 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 to the market, which has resulted in very major um, privatizations, very major uh, marketization and so on. But following this dual logic of, of, um, of, of, of maintaining control over the essential. Right. Okay. Well, I think we're, we're just uh, about out of time. Um, so uh, I think we'll, we'll wrap up here, but uh, I really appreciate um, you taking the time to talk and um, encourage uh, everyone listening to, to get a copy of the book. So it's Isabella M. Weber, How China Escaped Stock Therapy. And it's from Routledge Studies in the Chinese Economy. Uh, just came out last year. Um, again, you know, based on really, uh, really exciting uh, in-depth research, um, both uh, in the archives and uh, with the oral history of uh, people involved in these debates at that time. And I think, um, as uh, as you've implied, this really does 
get at kind of a perennial um, debate in in economics and in policy generally between you know the sort of ideal worlds that we imagine in our heads and then kind of how the 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 challenges you know in practice of the the different pathways of getting there and and how how rapidly you pace them. Um, so uh, thank you again, and um, I hope to uh, see you in person someday soon. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I hope so too. That would be wonderful.